sermon, which I'll just be, be very brief as we wrap up this second part of uh, Zacchaeus. So we're going to collect the flags. I'm going to start reading, and I'm going to start out with a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this service this morning, for the privilege that we have to share. Teach us your word. Make it clear to us. Make it succinct, not only so that we can understand it, but also, Lord, that we can apply it in our daily lives. Help us to walk these passages out. Help us to do these things so that you will be glorified and your people will be edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let me just read uh, Luke 19, starting at verse 1. He entered, this is Jesus. <clears throat> he entered Jericho and was passing through and there was a man named Zacchaeus. His name, by the way, means pure or righteous. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, or if you pronounce it Zacchaeus, that's fine. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. By the way, guys, before I read verse 6, I just want you to notice those directives, those powerful words. Hurry, come, must, today. Those are strong words which suggest a sense of urgency. It suggests a sense of imperativeness. It was something that needed to be done. It was critical. It was a purposeful, intentional request and actions on Jesus' part. I love that. Amen? So verse 6 says in Luke 19, So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Of course, I commented on that last week. I love the fact that Zacchaeus' attitude was one of joy, not one of hostility or confrontation or inquisitive, you know, just challenging Jesus. It was, oh man, I am so happy. I'm so joy. You know what joy means, by the way, guys, J-O-I? J-O-I is a synonym. It stands for J, stands for Jesus, O is for over, Y is for you, Jesus over you. So when you have joy, the joy of the Lord is just Jesus all over you. And I love what it says in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice, I say, in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. I love what Jesus said about joy also in John 15, 11. He says, these things I speak unto you, that your joy may be full, Lisa, full joy. Full joy and that you're that you may have joy in you and that your joy may be full. I love the other passage that says that the Lord's joy, he says, um, he says that I he says that in, in the Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 11, he says that the joy of the Lord, the J-O-Y, Jesus over you, the joy of the Lord is your strength, your dunamis, your power, your dynamite. That's what joy is. So when you're joyful, it gives you power. So when you are joyful, it gives you strength. When you're joyful, it gives you might to be overcomers. Amen? Oh, boy, be joyful. Don't be joyless Christians. 
Don't walk around like it's the end of the world and you don't have anything to be happy about and that being a Christian is a bummer and you're tired about people, tired of people criticizing you and making fun of you and you hate all the restrictions and prohibitions about being a Christian. Don't be that way. Be joyful that we get to suffer with him and reign with him, that we get to enjoy his life eternally and that we enjoy all the privileges of being a believer. It's a great thing. It's a joyful thing. Amen. I love the way Aaron's looking at me like he's just eating up every word back there. I love it, Aaron. He's going to be a preacher one day, probably. Okay, it says in verse 7, and when they saw it, this is the haters, the people around that's following Jesus, these, these crowd of looky-loos, says they all grumbled. He has gone to be with the, be the guest of a man who was a sinner. By the way, there's nothing wrong with eating with sinners. Jesus said in John 17 that we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Amen? I, I don't do it as much as I used to, but I used to take clients out to dinner and lunch all the time. I think it's fine to, to eat with people. It doesn't mean that just because you're eating with someone that you agree with them or endorse their lifestyle or condone their behavior. You're just having a meal. Sometimes it's an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's an opportunity to be a witness. Sometimes it's an opportunity to show that all Christians aren't prune-faced and haters and self-righteous and indignant and look down our nose at others. Sometimes it lets people see that, hey, we are human too, and we can be nice and compatible and hospitable and sociable. Amen? Sometimes it may be a good idea to invite your neighbor out to lunch. Take one of your enemies to breakfast. <laughs> Why not? Whatever. What, what better platform do you have for them to see the love of Christ in us, right? I think it's a beautiful thing. And I, Jesus had no prohibitions at all about going to this man's house to share a meal. He just broke down all the conventional barriers, all the racism, all the elitism, all the sexism, all the nationalism. These people had so many divisive ways. I pray that we, you know what, I, I, some, some, unfortunately, our brand, for the most part, at least in the West, our brand of Christianity looks a lot more like the Pharisees than it does like Jesus. Think about it. We become very sectarial. We become very divisive. We in our little silos are for and no more. We, we are, you know, we don't believe the way, if somebody else doesn't believe the way we believe, they're a false religion or a false prophet. We, we, we have this very uh, aloof attitude about our, our, our faith, and, and, it's, and it's, we're not being divided because we're coming out from among them and being sanctified, but a lot of times we're being divided just because we can we, we're divided for the sake of difference. We're divided because we're divided because they don't worship the way we worship, or dress the way we dress, or or congregate the way we congregate, or or they don't agree with every secondary issue that we agree with. That that to me becomes a problem. I think as believers, we need to look for ways to unify, to find our our likes and our strengths doesn't mean that we have to compromise our morals or compromise our, our, our understanding of Scripture. I'm not saying that we should be weak and, and without any type of convictions, but I think that we should look for ways to let's accentuate where we do agree. Let's accentuate the primary issues, the things that will get us to heaven. Amen? 
Really? Really, these guys just, I mean, he had dinner with a tax collector? Was it the end of the world? Of course, they considered him ceremonially unclean by doing that. You know, he would, he would have to be isolated for a day or so, maybe go wash in the Jordan or something before he could fellowship with other Jews over just because he shared a meal as though, as though Zacchaeus and his family had the cooties. I mean, when you think about it, it's just senseless. It's ridiculous. Lord, help us. Help us not to be divisive. Help us not to be self-righteous and look down on others and make others feel uncomfortable because they're not believers. I want them to see Jesus in us, in me. I want them to see the best part of me, the best part, that's Christ in me. The best, the best thing that I can offer is Christ in me, right? I'm not even on the topic that I wanted to be on, but that just caught my, every time I read this passage, I get hung up on the crowd, the crowd, the naysayers, the, the nitpickers, the, the haters, the people on the side taking snipes. I just pray that that's not any of us. I pray it's not any of you online. Uh, Lisa, can you just click got it so that screen will go away? Okay, let me just wrap this up. All right, so they grumbled in verse 7. and verse 8, Zacchaeus blew their minds when he stood. If I were writing this in 2023, you might say, and Zacchaeus stood up and just said, wow, this is just unbelievable. <laughs> but he said, behold, the King James Version and the, uh, the uh, literal version say, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. The Lord came to seek and to save those who were lost. Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. That's another verse for your refrigerator. That's a refrigerator. That should be right up there with Acts 17, 11, John 3, 16. It should be right up there with Genesis 1 and 1. It should be right up there with Colossians 2, 16 or, or Ephesians 3, 20. It should be right in there because repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins will be blotted out. Well, we've already repented. We that are believers, we repent it, right? We've been converted, right? So then the next part of it is times are refreshing. Yeah will come from the presence of the Lord. We should be just living in a constant, joyful time of refreshing where we're just enjoying God's goodness. We're enjoying each other's fellowship. I love it. For, uh, for me, I love it. I love that verse. And I think when Jesus came to, to Zacchaeus' house, some great things happened. And here's three of them, and I'm going to sit down because we have a nice Black History presentation, and, and we're going to have our, our closing hymn by Sister Mary uh, Louise. So here's number one, Jesus visit. This, this I really, I love. You know what? I know that this is considered a, a, a kid's story. It's kind of like a, a, a bedtime story or a Sunday school story. When you, I'm using the word story on purpose when we talk about Zacchaeus. But let me tell you, this thing is just full of theology. There's some biblical truths in this account that are just mind-boggling. I know I'm only spending two Sundays on it last Sunday today, but I think there's so much that could be said about this. Please read this at home. 
please read the notes. I took great time and to try to put in the notes things that I figured that I wouldn't be able to say in the sermon because I really wanted you guys to get this message because I think what Jesus did here is just profound. You guys on Zoom, make sure you read those notes. I sent you guys the unabridged copy. Sorry, you that are here. You guys online, you got the unabridged copy of the notes. Those of you here, I tried to condense it a little bit because I didn't want to overwhelm you with too much information. But I will say this. There's enough there for you to get the point. And here's point number one. Here's point number one. It is that Jesus calls us. We are called. We are drawn to him. He said, if I be lifted up in the earth, I'll draw all men unto you. He draws us. And I love this because I get this idea that the Lord is just seeking. He says, I come to seek and to save. The King James Version says that which was lost or we who are lost. He comes to save us. That's his purpose. It's one of his life purposes to seek and to save those who were lost. And you say, well, wait a minute, uh, dude, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it seems like to me that Zacchaeus came to Jesus. It was Zacchaeus that ran ahead. It was Zacchaeus that climbed the tree. It was Zacchaeus that hurried down. What did Jesus do? Well, I'll tell you what he did. He's the one that put the drawing. He's the one that put the magnetism. He's the one that put the desire in the heart of Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus even met Jesus. Remember, it was Jesus that hollered up and said, Zacchaeus, come down. It wasn't Zacchaeus hollering down. Jesus, can I talk to you? Jesus did the drawing. Jesus did the pulling. Jesus did the seeking. He said, I come to seek and to save those who are lost, right? And listen, this was no new thing, guys. Jesus, the, the Lord has been doing this forever, way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and they were eaten of the forbidden fruit and they had disobeyed God blatantly. They are the ones that missed the evening appointment where they were going to fellowship with God. They didn't show up. The Lord showed up in the garden at the time that he always showed up. Read Genesis 3. And he said, Adam. He looked over some trees. He looked over some mountains. I mean, Adam then went to Hawaii. He's gone. He's nowhere to be seen. Jesus said, Adam, where are you? And so since he couldn't hide, Adam fessed up. You know, hey, we hid. We don't, we don't feel real good today. We got the COVID. <laughs> yeah, they had the COVID of sin. They had blew it. But, but what I love about the account is, uh, apart from my corny jokes, the account is that the Lord came seeking them, right? After Elijah had that great, amazing triumph in 1 Kings 19, where he put to battle and slew 450 false prophets and had the power of the Lord consume the altar, the brick, the water, the dirt around it. And he had this amazing, amazing triumph. And then the word got back to Queen Jezebel, she put a hit out on him. He went and ran in the cave. He hid, right? But who was it that came to the cave and rescued him? Not with a reprimand, not with a rebuke, not with a threat. It was the Lord who showed up and said, uh, Elijah, the one with the J, um, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? It's the Lord that's always coming seeking 
coming to our rescue, pulling us out of the fire, looking for us. No wonder it says in 1 Chronicles 16, 9, that the Lord, that it says his eyes are looking to and fro throughout the earth, searching as it were, seeking as it were. To I love the King James Version said, to strongly support those whose heart are completely his. Oh, I love that verse. That's another kind of semi-refrigerator verse. First Chronicles 16.9. You guys should put it in there. It's great. Right up there with Jude 24 and 25. Okay, so the Lord seeks us. The eyes of the Lord are seeking us. And the Lord is always after us. So I think the Lord was after Zacchaeus and convicted him way before. Listen, way before the sycamore tree, Rod. Before the sycamore tree, something was going on. Remember what he said about uh, Nathaniel? Remember when Nathaniel came to Jesus? The, uh, Nathaniel came and said, uh, um, okay, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to check him out. I think Andrew recruited him. I'm not sure. But when Andrew came and the Lord said, ah, here's a, here's a man where there's no guile. And Andrew, uh, Nathaniel said, how, did you, how do you know me? And the Lord said, dude, I knew you before you were sitting under the fig tree. I knew you when you were in your mother's womb. Read Psalms 139. I knew you when you were being wove together before the foundation of the world. I knew you prior to Genesis 1.1. He said, Zacchaeus, come on down. So the Lord seeks us. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad that you can't escape? If you read Psalms 139, you can make your bed in hell. You can go to the depths of the sea. You can have the wings of the morning. You can't get away from him. You can't get away from him. We're learning that, Brother Coach, with Jeremiah. With Jeremiah, Jeremiah tried to quit. We haven't gotten to it yet. But, but Jeremiah, well, we haven't gotten to it yet because y'all just go all different directions on Wednesday. Poor Coach can't stay on his lesson plan because we want to go 15 different directions. But one day he's going to get to the part where Jeremiah just decides to throw in the towel and say, I quit, I'm done, I'm through with these people. They're hard-headed, stiff-necked, I can't handle it. And he tried to sit down. Y'all know the rest of the story, right? The Bible says that he tried to sit down, but it was like a consuming fire. It was like it was fire shut up in his bones. It was indescribable. He couldn't contain it. He couldn't stay still. He couldn't sit down. He couldn't quit. He couldn't resign. He couldn't even get fired. <laughs> so number one is God seeks us unrelentlessly. And by the way, before I go to number two, God has to seek us because we don't have the capacity to seek him. According to Romans 3.10, uh, let's see, it's up on the screen. See right there, Romans 3.10? It says, no, just kidding. No, Justin, you're good. Go ahead. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. We don't, see, we, we don't have the capacity to seek for him. You say, well, how can you say that? Because from the very beginning, Adam and Eve had the capacity to go back and face the music, and they ran. They didn't just run, guys. They ran and hid. Read the account, right? They ran and hid. Number two, number two, the Bible says that Zacchaeus stood, and this is Luke 19, 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, and I, I told you guys about what it means to stand up like that. He made a bold, formal 
confession. This was something that he was uh, doing publicly, equivalent to standing up and saying, I am joining the church. You know how we give people the right hand of fellowship? We extend them the right hand of fellowship. Well, this is basically Zacchaeus standing up and say, Lord, I've heard your word and I'm convicted. Now, by the way, the Bible wisely, for whatever reason, doesn't give us, and I say wisely because I'm going to tell you why in a second, doesn't tell us exactly what was stated in that conversation. We don't really know, by the way, where Zacchaeus heard the gospel. We don't know if it was between the time he came out of the sycamore tree to the time he got to his house in Jericho, or if it was all done in his house in Jericho. We don't really know where the actual conversion took place, where the conviction was so great that he accepted Jesus as Lord and confessed his sins. We don't really know where it has happened, but we know that it happened by the evidence I'm going to give you. And here's what I was thinking about. When I was thinking about this, I started thinking, Lisa, about Luke 24, and that's that conversation, that walk, that two-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and on the road to Emmaus. You guys remember that? On the road to Emmaus, Jesus just sort of transported himself Star Wars style and ended up right next to two dudes that were walking home from Emmaus, walking home to their, from, from Jerusalem rather, walking home to Emmaus. Remember that, Rod? So these cats are walking home. Jesus just kind of like manifests himself there and say, hey guys, what's up? What are you talking about? And they said, are you the only one in Jerusalem that don't know? Have you, basically, let me put it in 21st century language. He said, have you been under a rock? Did you just come here from Mars? Haven't you heard what's been going on? They crucified the Messiah. He rose again. And we don't know where he's at. And so the Bible, I love it. The Bible just says that Jesus, beginning with the patriarchs, beginning with Moses, he explained to them in that two-mile walk. By the way, I walked two miles, just when I, I preached a sermon years ago, I walked two miles to kind of time, you know, a casual walk. So I, I, started my, I started my watch, and I walked two miles to see about how long did Jesus have to preach the whole Bible. Okay? Because, you know, I know, you know, we don't like long sermons. So I started the clock. Sister Cynthia, you can relate to this. I started the clock, and I walked two miles to time it. You know, kind of like two miles, I think it's the same amount of distance that high school kids run when they run cross country. I think it's two miles, if I'm not mistaken. So I walked the two miles, and I said, hmm, maybe if they're just like really chilling, not power walking, 30 minutes. And he explained to them the entire Old Testament in 30 minutes. That is a challenge for all preachers across the world. There is a way to do it in 30 minutes. So in 30 minutes, he explained the, the, the uh, gospel from, from Genesis to Malachi. And at the end of the 30 minutes, the guy said, I'm using again 21st century language, wow. Didn't he blow our minds? Of course, they said, behold, did he not our hearts, did, did not our hearts burn within us when he spoke the word unto us? That's King James' version of it. My version of it was, wow. That was, man, that was like next level. That was out of this world. And they, they, they were so in, 
enthralled by his teaching. They said, can you stay with us a few more days? And he did, of course. You know, read it. Some of y'all looking at me like, okay, is he from Mars? Or what? What is Will talking about? Luke 24, guys. Read it. You know, you know take, take this home with you. Don't leave it in the car. Don't leave it in the back windshield. You know, let's read it. Because there's just, there, the, it's the book of life, right? He said, these words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are what? They're life. They're life. So one, I said, Jesus seeks us. Two, I said that Jesus, that Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, um, just that. He said, Lord, that's conversion right there. What do you mean, Pastor Will? I mean that no man, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no man can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So that had to be the Holy Spirit for him to say Lord, right? That's proof of conversion. That's proof of salvation. That's proof that he's been born again right there. We don't know when it happened, how it happened exactly, at what moment in time the total transition was made. But when he said, Lord, when he used the right vernacular, that was when he was proof positive that he was saved because you can't call Jesus Lord. You can say the word Lord, but you can't submit to him as Lord without the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I love it what it says here in Romans 9, 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's what it says in the New Living Translation. I love the way they reverse the phraseology because it has more of a flow to it as the way we would speak today. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God have raised him from the dead, the Bible says that you will be saved. That's salvation, Rod. That's salvation in its entirety. In that one verse, that's, that's, that's basically John 3.16 for the epistles. That's John 3.16. The song we heard today is essentially is embodied in Romans 10.9, and you can add in there verse 10, for it is by believing in the heart that you are made right with God. That's what makes us right. Amen? I love the fact that Zacchaeus was just, <laughs> Zacchaeus, he was just, this is just a prototypical example of salvation. I mean, a real live example. Here's my last point. I'm going to sit down. I'm done. The, my last point, point number one, the Lord seeks us. Point number two, he calls us to confess him as Lord as our part of our, as our conversion. That's the conversion process. We don't see here specifically where he repented, but we know he had to. We don't see here where he actually asked the Lord to come into his life, but we know he had to. We don't really see here where he said, Lord, I believe you, but we know he had to, right? And you say, well, Pastor Will, I think you're taking liberties in your interpretation there because I don't really see where that's written, and I don't know that you can draw that conclusion. Well, I don't have to draw the conclusion. Jesus said it himself. He said it right here in the last verse. He said, today salvation has come to this house. This man is saved. Sal the salvation didn't just come to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, because of the influence he had over his whole family, everybody in his family, his wife, his kids, maybe his grandkids, throw in a couple cousins and a second nephew, they all came to Christ that day. He said, today has salvation come to this house. This household might be the better translation. Amen? So I'm, I'm concluding with this last point. The last point is that Zacchaeus stood up. He said, behold, Lord, 
I will give half of my goods to the poor. And since I've de- and anyone that I've defrauded, I'm using the proper Greek grammar, I will repay them 400%. So if I stole from them $1,000, I'm going to give them $4,000. If I stole from them $10,000, I'm going to give them $40,000. Guys, can you imagine the line outside of Zacchaeus' house that day? Hey, I know they didn't have cell phones, but I'm saying, Jesse, you better get over here, boy. They give it away, buddy. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, can you imagine, guys, all those people saying, yeah, I got cheated. Where, where, where does he live? Where should I be? And so, and so he said, I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor. Oh, by the way, one, one more point before I make the, the final point of the last point. When I looked at that this week, I got a new revelation of this where I looked a little closer at this rod and reg. And coach, I looked at this and I said, it says half of my goods. Pretty much most of my life, I've always looked at this as being what Zacchaeus was saying. So I'm going to give half of my money, half of my cash. I've always looked at this as Zacchaeus was going to give up half of his currency. So if he had, say, I don't know, $100,000 in the bank that he had robbed from people, that he was going to give 50000 away to the poor and take the other 50000 and use it to repay people he had cheated. But I got a, a better understanding. I won't call it a revelation because it's never been unrevealed. It's never been hidden. But I got a better understanding. I looked up the word goods in the Greek. I won't give you the Greek word because it doesn't really matter. But the word goods in Greek means possessions or material worth or all of your property, Reg. So I went to Forbes magazine and I looked up what is the definition by Forbes of net worth. And the definition of net worth is all of your assets minus your liabilities. Put in non-accounting lingo, it means all the money, all the real property, all the possessions, all the gadgets, all the things that you have minus what you owe out. That is your net worth. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the word that Zacchaeus used. Not just his money, but his property, his horses, his cattle, his cars, his cell phones, his laptops. I don't know that he had all of that. But everything he had, he said, I'm giving half of it to the poor. And that was unsolicited. No one told him to do a thing. Jesus never asked anyone other than the rich young ruler in Luke 18 to give up all of his goods and give it to the poor and come and follow him. And by the way, he did do it. But this guy, he didn't ask, and he did do it voluntarily. That, to me, is evidence of salvation. To me, it's evidence that he had truly been converted. You know why? Because the Bible says that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So this is this guy denying himself, saying, hey, I am through with that world. I don't want any of the money that I obtained through illegal gain. I don't want to have anything that's going to be a hindrance or an idol or something that I put ahead of God. I am willing to divest myself of all of that because I will get riches in heaven. Amen. 
Isn't that what Bible, the Bible said? That's what Jesus told the, the rich young ruler in Matthew 18. He said, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me, and you will have riches in heaven. The rich man said, thank you, but no thanks. The rich young ruler said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not interested in that. I, I want to I get to heaven on my terms by keeping four of the Ten Commandments, which he wasn't even keeping very well because the Bible says, thou shalt not covet. And he was coveting his money, wasn't he? That's what that was. That unselfishness or that selfishness, rather, that greed, that was a form of covetousness. At any rate, I love the fact that this man said, I'm going to give away half of my money which really, really reminds me of what real religion is, what real faith is. James 1.27, pure religion, the New, the New Living translates it so nicely, pure religion and undefiled before God. In other words, if you really want to be pure and genuine in the sight of God the Father, this is what you need to do. Care for the orphans and widows in their affliction and refuse to be corrupted by the world. That's pure religion. And the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil, not money. So just having money was not the sin. The fact that the sin of this rich young ruler back in Luke 18, said he didn't want to part with it to follow Christ, that was the sin. The rich, the rich tax collector did not have that problem. He voluntarily gave up all of his money and paid back people that he had corrupted four times as much, which again was more than what the law required. So, ladies and gentlemen, I close by saying, faith without works is dead. James said it better. James said, you're going to show me your faith uh, with, with, and you don't have good deeds. He said, I'll show you my faith with my deeds or with my works. In other words, in, in, in James chapter 2, he's saying, that if you want to prove that you've been converted, if you want to prove that you're saved, show me by your works. Amen. Paul concluded in Ephesians 2.10 that you were saved unto good works which God has before ordained that you should walk in them. The fact that the guy gave away half of his wealth, half of his portfolio, half of his net worth, and then took the other half and repaid people four times as much as he stole when the law only required that he return the thing that he stole plus interest of 50%. He exceeded that by double he did not quibble over the specifics of the law because his heart was so sold out to Jesus that he didn't care. I guess, you know, some, you know, I think, I think Dave Ramsey said it once. He had been a millionaire a couple times and went bankrupt. I, and I think I read, once you learn how to become a millionaire, you can become a millionaire again. So, you know, maybe Zach's attitude was, I've been wealthy. It's overrated. I want something else. And if I ever need the money again, I'm I am now under the commission of the King of Kings. I, I work for Jesus. I'm going to get everything I need. If he wants me to be a millionaire, Zacchaeus could have said, I'll be a millionaire again. But if he doesn't, I'm down with that, too. You, it doesn't get any. He was in a win win position, was he not? And he knew it. What a revelation. Because many Christians today don't realize that we are servants of the king. We don't realize that we are blessed beyond measure. We don't realize right now today that we have all that we ever need and then some. We don't realize that if we have, have served him, that we have stored up for us riches untold.
we don't realize that we're already blessed and prospered and highly favored and sanctified and saved and set aside already right now today what a revelation lord i wish you'd give us one tenth of that give us one tenth of that mindset sister ethel Sister Annie, give us one-tenth of that revelation of what God has already done for us and who we are in Jesus and exactly what our status is, exactly what our position is right now. Lord, give us that revelation. I think it'll change our lifestyles. I think this guy was changed so much that he, will, he was never the same again. People probably thought he had lost his mind and had a stroke. You know, to, that he had, had some sort of brain aneurysm for him to be so disconnected that he would give up all of his wealth and follow Jesus. That was such a disconnect. It's amazing that we don't get the backstory or the rest of the story post his conversion, post conversion, Zacchaeus, because I bet you he was just the talk of the town. If he was a villain before, he became a crazy man afterwards. <laughs> and I, I not in a, in a bad way, though, in a good way, that he had done so much. Here's the Monday morning moment. The Monday morning moment is Jesus knows our past, present, and future, and he still loves us. I'll repeat it again. Jesus knows our past, present, and future, and he still loves us. Oh, Lord, Psalms 139, you have examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know what my thoughts are, even when I'm a far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say, even before I say it, Lord. And I would add, and you still love me. And you still love me. The Lord finds a way to love us when we do the ugliest things, when we do the worst things, when we think the worst thoughts and say the worst words. He still is able to forgive us. How much more so should we do the same to each other? Amen? Anybody here does not say that would like to accept the Lord Jesus? I just feel glad to have an altar call. Even though I don't say it, every Sunday the altar is open for salvation. Even if I don't make a formal appeal, it's always open up here. The elders are always available. But I just felt led to just say, anyone feel like Zacchaeus that just want to abandon all that you have in the world and accept the Lord Jesus, this is a great time. Any time is a good time, but no time is better than the present to accept the Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Tim.